you're at a place you just discovered. And being an American Express Platinum card member with Global Dining Access by Resi helped you score tickets to quite the dining experience. Okay, chef. You're looking at something you've never seen before, much less tasted. After your first bite, you say nothing because you're speechless. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your dining experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. Featuring a reimagined exterior with compelling proportions and precise detailing, and an interior built with robust materials and integrity, the Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Its durability has been tested to the extreme, while the cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Welcome to the ID10T podcast number 1026. Come on down to Irvine, California, November 15, 16, and then at the beginning of December to the Tacoma Comedy Club in Tacoma, Washington, and then um, I'm setting up a bunch of tour dates for next year, so I'll post those soon at ID10T.com slash tour. And while you're at ID10T, uh, maybe look at the new... Uh, Jetsons t-shirt that we just posted with uh, a little bit of a Rick and Morty flair. That's also at ID10T.com. But let's talk about you, the ID10T community. Events at ID10T.com is uh, what you would do if you wanted to share your thing with us. Like Will, who writes, My brother-in-law, Elijah, and I have made a podcast called Bring on the Weird. We talk conspiracy theories with a smattering of true crime and generally weird stuff in the world. We make correlations between stuff that uh, have no business being correlated together. Or do they? We have 10-plus episodes. A simple search for Bring on the Weird will get you to us. But the easiest way to find us is, uh, and best way to listen is to go to anchor.fm slash bringontheweird. This episode is Mr. Mr. Matthew Modine, who uh, has been in some legendary films and had uh, a whole new uh, swath of stuff come about thanks to Stranger Things, uh, which he was fantastic in as well. And uh, just an all-around, well-rounded, super cool guy. I learned a lot about him and his family background's really interesting too. So it was a tremendous pleasure to talk to Matthew Modine uh, for about an hour. He's promoting the new film Miss Virginia, uh, which is in theaters and VOD and digital uh, on October 18th, which is the day this is posting. So go see it in the theater if you can and, and uh, he'll explain why why that's important uh, later in the, in the podcast. But thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is ID10 number 1026 with Matthew Modine. Initiating ID10T protocol. I was reading about your great-grandfather, and that is a fascinating story because he founded a lot of these odd towns, like, in the desert. 
Well, yeah, I mean, they, they, they saw where the, cra- the, the, the train tracks crossed. Yeah. And, and for instance, Baker, California. Baker, home of the Mad Greek, where yeah. I always stop to yeah. get strawberry um, milkshakes. Yeah. If you make a right there at the, at the Greek and you drive out towards Shoshone, uh, my grandmother plate planted date palms from Pitts, and it's a place called China Ranch. And China Ranch, my, my cousin Brian Brown uh, runs it. Uh, he's part of the, the old Charlie Brown, was the governor of California. Oh, wow. Uh, but uh, he, he's a thriving date business and, and sells date palms to people who, with homes in Las Vegas. That's so interesting because yeah. ba- Baker is one of those towns where it just feels like, what was this? You know, and it because, you know, they got the big thermometer there and then just like a couple of retailers. Yeah. And then and then that's it. It's like it's yeah. just a stopover for Vegas. That's it. I mean, it was a gas stop, yeah. a, ga- a gas stop, a you know, place to get some groceries. So uh, we used to have our Thanksgivings there every year. That's where the whole family would gather oh, wow. at, at my uh, my grandmother's sister's motel, Aunt Betty and uh, Betty Lyle. And, uh, yeah, when I, when I was a boy, there was an ice cream. It was called The Cone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was the grocery store, a uh, little post office, and the motel, and, a, ga- and a, a couple gas stations. And, you know, it's grown into a town of a, maybe 300 people that right. live out there in Baker now. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's essentially what it is, is a gas stop. It was, was that the nature of a lot of the places that he founded where he said, oh, there's a – there needs to be a little bit of infrastructure here because this is a pathway for something. Yeah. Well, I don't know of any other towns that they... I read that they, there were like three towns. Yeah. But my cousin, I wish my cousin were here because she knows the whole history of the entire yeah. family. But yeah. yeah. But, but uh, China Ranch, uh, uh, yeah, but th- there's a lot of Modine and Fairbanks <laughs> and, and Lyle and Brown out there, out there in the desert. And I love it out there. You know, I think it's a magical place and not some place you want to be in August. Or, oh, my God. It's July, oppressively August, hot. Yeah. yeah it's- Insanely hot. And, then it's, and with climate change, it's gotten worse. I mean, it gets into the 120s. And, uh, and there's no shade. <laughs> yeah, and, and there's these horrible black flies. Yeah. That, that as soon as they light, they bite. They they uh, they they bite you. And uh, that was one of the mistakes that my great grandfather made out there at Modine Meadows, which yep. is next door to China Ranch. Uh, was trying to raise cattle on salt grass and uh, uh, brackish water, and so the the water wasn't healthy for the cows to drink. But the the, cow, the cows would literally get the blood sucked out of them by these oh black God. flies. See, that's the sort of the the uh, tenacious and or stubborn nature of humans is that there's a lot of places in the world where I feel like the environment is saying. Don't come here. It's like I go, you know, like if you go up to like the Upper Peninsula of Michigan for like four or five months of the year, it's just a frozen. It's like living in a meat freezer, and I feel like that's the environment going. Don't live here. Don't live. And here. people are like, yeah. no, fuck you. We're gonna live here. And I think that I I I am delighted and also horrified at the same time about yeah. the human nature because yeah. of that kind of thing. Well, I mean, they did try. They they uh, my grandfather, my great grandfather, and I think my, my grandfather's uh, brother. Uh, Mort was the three of them. They went up to uh, Alaska to yep. go gold mining, and they had dogs and sleds, and and they got caught in the winter quarters. 
uh, in a long Alaskan, you know, one of those frighteningly cold winters, and they had to eat their dogs. Oh, no. And they never talked about it. If you brought up Alaska, they would, you know, get angry and look away. You just could. You they were could, just traumatized. Yeah, they were definitely post-traumatic stress from having uh, lived through that winter, the close quarters that they must have been in in order to be able to survive, and then the horror of having to eat your animals. I mean, that's, that, that is a terrifying... I can understand why they wouldn't want to talk about that, but it sounds like you come from a family of, like, survivors, you know? Yeah, pioneers. Yeah. I mean, yeah. even... A, so your dad opened... He would, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it like they'd open a drive-in... And then the land would be more valuable than the drive-in, so they would take it, take it, and then he'd start it somewhere else. Yeah, he was the the drive-ins existed. We were that's why I think my dad was the rehabilitator of drive-ins because they'd be falling apart. And as he was the general manager when we moved to Utah, about a dozen drive-ins, a half dozen drive-ins, and a couple movie theaters, we, he would always come in. He was, as I say, seven kids, and he'd put us all to work with different kind of jobs, whatever we could manage, depending on our age. And uh, we'd re- rehabilitate the drive-ins, and then we'd move. And I, I just assumed we were moving to the new drive-in to fix it. Mm-hmm. You know, we'd fix that one. Now it's time to fix this one. And it was when I was about 11, 11 years old. I mean, this this sounds horrible. I mean, you know, today in this world that we live in, uh, I literally, like when we moved from Imperial Beach, California, to Sugar House in, uh, in, in Salt Lake City. So if any of your listeners are in Salt Lake City, I was going to school temporarily at a school in Sugar House, and then we moved to Cottonwood. And after school, my parents said, just walk to the new house. And it was about four and a half miles or five <laughs> miles. And it was, it, you know, it was cold. It was a fall and winter. And uh, this, you know, I'll never forget because by the time I got there, I had to go to the bathroom probably halfway on the, sure. along the way. And by the time I, I couldn't find the house, I pooped my pants. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Sorry to laugh. Yeah, I know. I mean, it's, it was... Uh, but uh, anyway, so Wait, this is, hang on a second. Yeah. This is, there's a root of real trauma here. Yeah. I mean, this is <laughs> yeah. You not yeah. only had. By the way, this is the makings yeah. of a great. Yeah. You know, you damn kids today don't know. I had to walk home five miles in yeah. the cold. I shit my pants. Yeah, it doesn't sound. You were not going to believe it. Yeah, you're not going to believe. It. I had to hide the underwear. You know, put put them in the garbage, and you know, so that nobody would know that that happened. <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, at least no one knows except yeah. for now. Yeah. But it's a good that is a that is a how old were you at that eleven? No, I was like five or six years oh, old. I was, I was old. in first grade. Oh my I was, gosh. Yeah, just starting first grade. What a different time. Walk home five miles. Yeah, yeah. And then so I get on the bus to go from uh, Midvale, uh, Midvale, Utah to Orem, Utah to go back and see my friend Jason. And my dad said, No, you don't want to go back. I said, No, no, I really want to go back and see him. So he let me get on the Greyhound, 11 years old. Oh, my now, gosh. Yeah, I mean, this just, the, the whole idea of it is terrifying today, you know, with the creeps and the weirdos that hang out at bus stations. Um, so I get on the bus and I get to where my house was. The house was gone. What? The drive in was gone. It was a Grand Central sh- shopping center. There was a parking lot over where I had buried my first dog, oh my Jeefer. And then. As I started, I got off the bus and trying to figure out, like, what ha- where, where did everything go? And I walked through what used to be uh, uh, apples and pear orchard. And, uh, to, you know, I'd walk through that to go to school. That was gone. That was a subdivision. 
of houses. And, and then, you know, the reason my dad didn't want me to go back was because he knew, he knew that I was going to be traumatized by seeing everything gone. And then, of course, what happens with your friends is they replace you, especially sure. at those young ages. Why did he want you to see that? Well, he didn't want. Oh, he, he tried, didn't he, want you he to try. He oh, he was trying to, to get. You. I thought you said yeah. he did. Okay, no. gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. But that that kind of a uh, that is interesting though because I feel like there is a little bit of a parallel between that kind of a transient lifestyle and what it means to be a performer in the business because you are kind of going mm. from thing to thing. You build something and then it's done, and then you move on, and yeah. you know you build something and you move on. Well, I teach acting. I teach acting classes for free at the New York Film Academy. And and what I've learned over the 30-something, almost 40 years of, of being an actor, because I ask a few questions when I'm working with other people, is is where where do you fall in the family? Are you the youngest? Are you the oldest? Are you the middle? Uh, did you move around a lot? And what I found is that most successful actors uh, are the youngest members of their family. Not always. There are exceptions. But, and, and or from transient, mm-hmm. chi- had transient childhoods, you know, military childhoods, or you know, they just moved around a lot. Yep. And, and uh, so I, I fall into both of those categories of being transient and the youngest. And uh, I would say that 90% of the performers that I've worked with or taught are, are from a similar situation. Directors are generally the oldest. Uh, writers are often the oldest child in their family's middle child. Um, I think that it's it's something about structure and leadership that, uh, that 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 you know is a first child that you have different responsibilities than you do if you if you're the youngest. Sure. I mean, with the first child, your parents rush you to the doctor when you get a when you get a fever. Right. You know, when anything happens, the second child, you go, oh, remember the, the doctor just said to give him a baby aspirin. The <laughs> third, put you on a bus. Yeah. The, yeah. The third child. The third child, you say, you know, by the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, yes. the seventh child you say don't worry he'll stop bleeding be <laughs> yeah. Yeah. or he won't i don't know we got six yeah. other ones who fucking know it. <laughs> yeah. but also i'm sure when you're the youngest of seven you probably have to perform a little bit to get attention i would imagine with that much activity yeah. in the house yeah. yeah yeah and you have so many people you can you can study and look at and learn how to uh keep yourself from getting in trouble and i'm sure you also have to establish a very specific identity because there's yeah. so much there's a cast of characters how do you stand out in a in a you know in a cast of that yeah. many people in yeah. your in your yeah. home? Yeah. Um, I fall into both. Although I'm an only child, but I uh, uh, we moved we transit transit yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah, yeah 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 like and so I think that I think that need to reacclimate to new schools and have to hmm. kind of perform to yeah. you know to get attention to get attention or whatever. It's hmm. I completely understand it. Hmm. I didn't know you taught acting classes. That's really cool. For free. You teach classes for free. Yeah, I studied in New York City with Stella Adler and she told me that when you get older and it, it, you know if you've had a successful career and have, have paid attention and, and listened and learned over the course of your career that it's a, you have a, a responsibility to share the information with the next generations and so um uh you know she taught me a tremendous amount i've learned a tremendous amount you know uh, working with stanley kubrick and robert altman and alan parker and john schlesinger and alan pakula these extraordinary filmmakers that i've had the the pleasure and the honor of working with 
um, I've, I've listened. I've, I've paid attention. You know, I don't, I don't go back to my trailer and, and, and sit in there and, you know, I don't know, smoke pot or, right. you know, do whatever people do in their trailers. I usually stay on the set and, and, and listen and watch how people do things. You know, I, it's fascinating to me that we're all given the same equipment on movie sets. You know, we have a camera and lenses and crew members and people are passionate about making a film. And some people are able to do extraordinary things with it. Uh, with that equipment and those people, and some people uh, miss and, f- and fail miserably, and I, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't figured out what the difference is. Is you know that because every you know you never start a film without the belief that it's going to be wonderful and that you're going to do a good job. And the difference just, is chemistry. Yeah, it's it's a magic. It's like a pair of ladies' nylons. You know, it just takes a snag to make the whole pair of stockings come or undone. you and i can have the exact same contents in our kitchen i you, we both have flour we both have sugar we yeah. both have vanilla extract we both have 10 other ingredients yeah. you make a beautiful cake and i make a turd like it's just <laughs> like there's no it's 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 just chemistry yeah. i think it's i think and what made me kind of want to go down this path is is when you teach how do you express that to your students? Because when you're teaching an acting class, you're giving them a kind of idealized environment. It's okay to fail here. It's okay to try Absolutely. things. This is a safe environment. But you mention all of those directors, some of whom I'm sure had historically strong personalities, different personalities. Yeah. How do you teach them to navigate the different chemistries that they will encounter, the different directors, mm. the director who's hard on them, the director who's like, do whatever you want, you know, like, yeah. how do you convey that to an actor that they will have? Is that just something they have to learn on their own? Well, I like to think of acting as like the the same discipline that a musician would would have that if 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 I played the violin and I was being invited to be the first violinist at, at this uh, as a part of this orchestra and this really famous conductor you know let's call him Stanley Kubrick sure. is, is going to conduct this piece of beethoven music now my responsibility is uh to understand the piece as best i can to to understand the 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 tone of the music uh, but my my responsibility as a violinist is to learn my part and understand my part. And the difference between one violinist and another violinist is how much pressure they put on the strings, how much pressure they have on their bow and the strokes of their bow. The the uh, and the way that that's how they interpret the song. So with an actor, that's what you're doing. You have the same like if we were doing Hamlet, you'd have the same script as I would, and I might interpret the, the Hamlet different than your Hamlet, uh, and that would be just because of uh, having pooped my pants when I was <laughs> when I was uh, a, a little boy, you know, or, or having to walk home. Or, Shakespeare or, in the park. Yeah, the, the the experiences that you have in life are the things that inform you, and in the in the decisions, and the way that you see things, and the way that you choose to interpret things are based on the experiences in your life. Uh, uh, so, you know, uh, Harper Lee in her book, To Kill a Mockingbird, she says you never truly understand another person until you get inside their skin and move around in it. So that's what we're doing is, as a musician, trying to understand why Beethoven wrote those notes, what the, what, how to interpret that song. And that's what we're doing as actors is, is climbing into the, the, the ideas and the thoughts of that writer and uh, trying to figure out how to interpret that character and bring him to life. I um uh, I, I want to ask about because I'm I'm a doer and I'm trying to learn how to be a beer uh-huh. and I'll explain what that means. But I just start taking voice lessons because just because 
the way the stand up that I do, like I fuck up my voice a lot because I'm I talk loudly, and so I was trying to learn how to sing better and speak better. And she said, "Oh, the you Diaph- know, it's not in your throat, your diaphragm, it's in your stomach." Yeah, and you have to let the air pass through your throat. And she said, your breath becomes the song, which I thought was a really profound thing. And I said, yeah, but it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything. And she says, it's not supposed to. (laughs) And I think the same thing with acting or performing or any other discipline that we condition ourselves to think that in order to be doing something, we have to feel like we are doing something Hmm. as opposed to just being. Hmm. So what is the challenge? Like, with acting, what is overcoming that idea so it doesn't, you know, because you can tell when someone's like, I'm acting up here, yeah. versus when they're just being whatever yeah. part of the organic role they're in. Yeah. Well, being is the most important thing to learn in your life to be, mm-hmm. um, to exist. You know, uh, the, there are certain, excuse me, artists who, uh, who uh, innately know that they, at, at an early age, uh, who they are, what their genus, what their genius is, and and are comfortable with with who they are, and and most of us go through life uncomfortable and feeling inadequate, and and feeling that, uh, you know, it, we look at other people's lives and think if oh if I only l- looked like that, if I only had that, if I only behaved more like that person, I'd be cool too, <laughs> and um, you know, I think that. You know, you either are Elvis Presley or you're not Elvis Presley. <laughs> Elvis Presley uh, was very comfortable with his uh, sexuality, and I, I I could never play Elvis Presley because, as I say, you either are Elvis Presley or you're not. You can't play that kind of sexy, uh, confident human being if you don't possess uh, that confidence and have sure. that sens- sensuality inside of you. The, uh, the blues singers say that you can't sing the blues unless you've lived the blues. Right. You know, that, uh, and I, I think that there's, there's something that, to that. But um, learning to be is, is uh, to be comfortable with who you are and, and not caring about what, I mean, there's, there's books and books and books and rows and rows and rows in the store of self-help books in the, in the bookstores. Uh, telling you uh, how to be comfortable with who you are, accepting who you are. Um, and uh, it, it is a difficult thing to do. But but the easiest thing about acting is looking your partner in the eye and telling the truth, the truth of that character and, and being as truthful as you can. Uh, that you don't have, have to be somebody else. You first have to have to be comfortable with who you are. And then... And then uh, it, 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 then you can put some gravy on it, and you know, the, with the way you dress and the way that you speak, and and uh, the, you, how you choose to interpret the role. But you have to be truthful to who you are as a human being. That's interesting because it makes me think that maybe just people who even don't want to be actors maybe should take an acting class and then apply the techniques to themselves. Because when you're studying a character, it's a little more one-dimensional than exploring your own life because you know the character in a film has a a limited series of motivations and wants and needs you kind of understand what that is i guess and and then you can make choices and tell that truth to the other person like you said and so then i wonder if you'd be able to take that into your own life and go okay well if i was a character what do i want why do i want those things and what's my truth you know and then move from that place i think it would be an interesting skill set to be able to apply to your life i agree with you yeah. yeah and so do you teach that to is your class like 
is it the same group of people? Do you do a course, or is it just like anyone who wants to show up on these days can show up, or how does how is it set up? Well, I there so there's a lot of students from the New York Film Academy that that come. Uh, they have to audition for the class, uh, so that because um, they call it. I mean, it always sounds pretentious to me, but they call it a master class, mm-hmm. and so they have to audition and they bring in very good students, but. Um, I, if I'm in a restaurant and I meet a waiter and or a waitress and I think that they're interesting and they're actors, I always I, I invite a dozen people to come to the class for free because I, I don't think that you should uh, profit from yeah. sh- sharing information. It's like an open source, yeah, sort of. A, this is what I learned, and then also in a way, you are sort of like passing down. It's almost a like a, a knowledge or emotional genes yeah. that you are passing down from Stella Adler to all these different people that formed the unique molecule of Matthew Modine mm. onto other people. Yeah. But, you know, in uh, yoga classes are called uh, – yoga is called a practice mm-hmm. because it's not something that you ever master. And, mm-hmm. and I believe that's, this, that's true of acting. It's, it's, it's a practice. It's something that you never master, that, that you're always – well, you should be always trying to – uh, learn and and continue to develop, and so you don't get uh, gimmicky, you mm-hmm. know. But I mean, that's an actor, that not a movie star, you know. Sylvester Stallone is genius at what what he does. He knows what he does well, and he he has made movies that have made billions of dollars <laughs> as a result of it. Right. Clint, Clint Eastwood is a good example. That I mean, it, one of his most famous lines is, a man has to know his limitations. Mm-hmm. Clint Eastwood knows his limitations as an actor, as a performer, and he he stays in that pocket. You know, it's like if you were a pitcher and you, you threw, uh, you know, a slider and a, and, a, and a fastball, you know, you're not going to then try to s- throw sinkers or s- throw something that you're not, you're not good at throwing because you guys are going to hit your ball out of the park. Right. So, but um, I, I've never, re- I, you know, I mean, uh, it would, it's wonderful to be a movie star because you can get projects greenlit. You know, you can do the, you know, those projects that you're passionate about, but... Um, I've always been really more interested in uh, what filmmaking and, and storytelling, doing theater, that it's an opportunity for me to learn uh, about who I am and what it is to be a, a citizen of the planet. You know, that this, it's an extraordinary kind of uh, a, a opportunity to learn. You know, I've, I've flown a B-17. I've sailed an America's Cup yacht. I've worked with all these incredible actor, I mean, actors and directors that I've, I've mentioned, writers. Uh, Michael Hare, who wrote, I think, one of the best books about Vietnam called Dispatches, became a very good friend of mine. He wrote the, 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 the voiceover in Apocalypse Now. Um, the, the, you know, Alan Parker. I mean, all these extraordinary people, these artists and stuff that you have, uh, that you have uh, ability to to work with and share ideas with, and and then the access that that gives you to other artists. You know, having uh, met David Boy and, and and David wanting to paint with me because oh my gosh. yeah, I mean that 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 it's uh, it gives you entree to such a, a extraordinary. Uh, group of people that that it's magical it's it's an amazing amazing profession to be a part of yeah but i i think you're right about i think the movie star track is limiting because i think at a certain point that becomes more about maintaining a level of commercial success 
rather than I mean because there's a lot of you know big movie stars where I'm like oh but they're such great character actors it'd be great if they just yeah. allowed themselves the ability to just disappear into a small yeah. film rather than having to try to make a blockbuster yeah. or have to be a huge movie star every yeah. time I but I, but who knows Tom Cruise is a good example of that I mean the the, the Tropic Thunder or uh, you know some of the oh, he's more, phenomenal yeah comedic roles that he's done yeah I I, I it, and and the where you saw his his chops a couple times. Uh, where he got out of where his you know big movie star kind of comfort zone, uh, the the color of money. I thought he was fascinating. Yeah, in that. and and uh, the movie he did with Jamie Fox, where you know uh, where he was a hitman, and mm-hmm. Jamie Fox is driving him around Los Angeles, and he's killing people. Yeah, I don't remember what it was. I can't remember what that's called, but I. Collateral. Collateral. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. he. Well, I think. So the Tropic Thunder character, Les Grossman, I think he's doing like a limited series on Quibi, which is a new like short form platform yeah. that. Uh, and, and it is. It's like it. People stepping outside their comfort zone, trying new things. But you have done so many different kinds of. You know, you. You mentioned all those directors, but you've done so many different kinds of films mm. as well. And, you know, if you want if you want a Kubrick film, you've got that. And then, you know, listen, I'm a Vision Quest fan. You know, yeah. like I saw that movie at the right age. I was like just barely getting into, you know, I was a teenager at the yeah, time. Yeah. And so that's a different type. That, that's a totally different type of movie experience. But one that to me is is just as meaningful as a Kubrick film. Yeah. You know? It's a it's an extraordinary film. It's a I mean, great the, it's, movie. It's not just a coming of age movie. It's 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 uh it, it is a it's a wonderful movie. I love I'm it. glad I love, that you like I love it. Vision Quest. I'm so glad to hear yeah, that. Yeah, I'm no. so glad to hear that. Yeah. When you uh did that was that before was that before Full Metal Jacket? Oh yeah. Yeah it was way yeah, before that Full was Metal Jacket. Re- really early on in my career. I I I'd done uh the movie that broke broke me really big was a Robert Altman movie called Streamers, based mm-hmm. on uh, David Rabe play. Mike Nichols directed it on Broadway, and we won uh, a, a Best Actor award at the Venice Film Festival. So that that broke me. That 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 got me noticed. And then uh, Harold Becker, the director of Vision Quest, saw that movie and he said, "You know, I think you're a really terrific actor, but." Can you do ten push-ups? Because I was so skinny. I was, you know, I was I was still in drama school. I was smoking cigarettes and drinking drinking gallons of coffee and trying to look like a New Yorker. You know, I wanted I wanted to get the the hair the hay out of my hair from Utah. Uh, you know, because when you'd get on the su- you get on the subway and people say, "Where are you from?" I say, "Oh, I live on the Upper West Side." No, no, but where are you from? I said, "I, li- I live here." Yeah. No, no, but where are you from? You know, because I, I just wanted to be pe- pe- get people to believe that I was from New York City. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was, there was no, no way that I was ever going to... They're just, you know, I didn't have that 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 New York stink you yeah. know, that, that, uh, that gets on you from growing up in New York City. You Did know. you have the... Because I've heard, I've heard a couple of key words since we've been talking. I've heard you use the word meditate. I've heard you use the word yoga. It seems to me that you might be someone who practices mindfulness. Yes. Uh, and so it... Uh, was that something that you always did? Did that help you navigate in a healthy way all of all of that stuff, or did you learn yeah. to, to do that? Well, you're always learning, as they say. You sure. know, like like yoga, they call it practice. So mindfulness is is extraordinary. Um, I, the most, I, you know, I don't say this in a in a 
you know, because I'm trying to kiss the ass of ladies, but the most powerful people that have influenced me in my life have been the women in my life. And my, my, my grandmother, uh, Zella, that, that, that planted those date palms mm-hmm. out at, at China Ranch in, in uh, Death Valley in, uh, near Shoshone. Uh, her first child burned to death in, uh, in a smokehouse. Uh, you know, he was playing with matches and burned to death. And she couldn't understand why if there was a loving God, it would kill a child. So and she was not happily married to my grandfather. So she burned the house down, took her daughter and left Jesus. and, and uh, traveled across the United States, joining every religion wow. that she could come on. I read a book by uh, uh, Sid Arthur, by uh, uh, Herman Hesse, uh, that kind of make, made me think, that's what my grandma, that, that was her journey, where she kept joining religion after religion after Just religion. searching. Yeah, to try to understand what had happened to her child. And that journey took her to India. Uh, where she went to meet Mir Baba. And on the boat ride to India from New York, uh, Mir Baba died. And so she arrived in India with her guru dead and then came back to New York and started working on Park Avenue, taking care of uh, senior citizens. You know, she was the, the nurse that pushes the people mm-hmm. around. That's what the job she had. Uh, and uh, the, when she finally came into my life, I was already about 15 years old. I didn't know her because of this incredible journey she'd been on. But in uh, the, the story of Siddhartha, it's the story of the Buddha, and he, he joins religion after religion after religion, thinking that this is the real one. Nope, this is the real one. Nope, this is the real one. And then he finally realizes when he's sitting under the Bodhi tree that what he was searching for was within him. So there, you hear this often in different religions, uh, different, uh, in many different religions, as within, so without, as above, so below, the yin and the yang, you know, all, all, that, all of these things that are balanced. And my grandmother uh, really understood that because of the journey that she had been on. And she instilled a lot of that in, in just going to sit in her trailer in her little motor home, she had a, a, a mo- which is poetic. She lived in a trailer called the Nomad. <laughs> and... and uh, she shared those stories with me about about her life and and the things and she was an extraordinary person and then my mother was amazing and then this woman that became my wife uh that she's not just saved my life but she's saved my soul i mean she's she's an extraordinary person and now my daughter is that 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 uh, the wisdom that she has that she shares with me and the and encouragement that she gives me uh, when you feel like giving up sometimes that especially as you get older, I think that it gets easier just to say ah, i don 't want you know i 'm just going to stay home sure and she kicks you in the in the ass and tells you to get back out there and go and go you know keep keep moving because yeah, when you stop moving, you you things get brittle sure you know, it's as your mind gets brittle, your bones get brittle you you know, you atrophy. And, and uh, so she, she keeps me in the game. Oh, that's good. I mean, I, I've started, to, a friend of mine recommended some, um, this, this guy, uh, um, Arjun Brahm, and he runs the Western uh, Australia Buddhist Society. Uh-huh. So I've been watching these really great videos of him on YouTube. And, and there are some things where you're like, well, you'd probably have to be a Buddhist monk to apply yeah. some of these things. Yeah. But for the most part, you can take what you need and apply yeah. and yeah. i am fascinated by the idea of just figuring out how to live in the pure present yeah where you just it's like you know we basically construct these these prisons of our own lives maybe based on our egos or some of what he said seems to be like based on expectation you know there's a lot of frustration that comes from expectation mm. um and so 
you know, how do you let all that go? How do you how do you free yourself from all that kind of yeah. stuff? Yeah, materialism and expectation, they're kind of uh, sisters or brothers, brothers and sisters. They, yeah. they, they go hand in hand. Uh, it's, uh, I, I tell you what, um, diet is so important to, uh, this part as, a, as an adjunct of this journey. And, um, my wife and I had seen this wonderful documentary on television called sugar coated. It's mm-hmm. on Netflix and, uh, sugar causes inflammation and they, they've known for, for decades that sugar is the only thing that cancer eats. And, uh, by reducing uh, simple carbohydrates and sugars, and that's all of them, agave, maple syrup, uh, what happens with, with sugar, it causes inflammation. So if you imagine your brain right now, uh, all those beautiful little, little veins in your brain uh, and the neurons inside your brain, uh, just the tiniest bit of inflammation inside your brain puts pressure on those and reduces the ability to carry oxygen and, and the nutrients to your to the tissues of your brain, and and uh, slows down the, the the information traveling across the network of neurons inside your brain, and so after three days of of reducing sugar and uh, simple carbohydrates. Uh, it was as if I'd been going through life with my fingers and my ears, and it almost popped, and I became conscious in a way that, that I don't remember, because we go through our life eating tons of sugar and carbohydrates. Oh, and, it's in everything. In everything, yeah. And, I mean, sugar is in everything. <laughs> and and it, it, the big thing, I suffer with depression, which so many people do, and that guy never comes around anymore. And I thought, you know, if I don't ever eat a cupcake again in my life to keep that guy from dragging me down into a hole and beating me up, uh, I, I'm, I'm never going to miss sugar again the rest of my life. I'm glad to hear you say that because I, I have talked to a lot of people about the diff- how it's easy to confuse physiological responses with emotional responses and how if you are having an emotional response you can convince yourself that it's for a variety of reasons. I'm a piece of shit or I suck yeah. or this is that or the yeah. world's against me or blah, blah, blah. Yeah. When in fact it's like, oh, I probably either didn't eat, didn't hydrate, ate too much sugar in right. your case or, or whatever. And so it it's nice, I think, for people. And we do have to constantly be reminded of these things because yeah. they're so easy to forget. Yeah. Did you ever smoke marijuana? No, I mean, I did. A, I, I, I've maybe done it like eight times in my entire yeah. life. And the last time was almost 20 years ago. And... I was just, I never liked, it always made me paranoid. That's why I brought it up. So if you think of sugar as something that has a physiological effect on your body and causes you to have, uh, with marijuana, yeah. uh, make you get uh, paranoid. Yeah. And sugar causing inflammation and, and causing, so they're, they're kind of, you know, they're very similar. Well, of that, course, because yeah. it's so insidious because certainly in the case of, Alcohol or weed or drugs or, or prescription drugs or sugar, it is that that instant gratification lures you in. It, it is almost like a it is almost like a parasite that feels good for a second, yeah. but then when it's in there, it does the real damage and it yeah. makes you want more of that thing. Yeah. So yeah. fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but with the, in the case of marijuana and feeling paranoid, I think that all the marijuana does is open the door to what's going on within. That, that that you you actually are paranoid and the the marijuana is just making you. What do you say that? What do you mean? I don't yeah, understand. Exactly. Wait, what? What yeah. do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> well, I think it's good, and I think it's yeah. good that you. I think it's good that you're if you know if you've had struggles with depression that you that you're open about it because in the same way that you open source acting teach, 
it's just helpful for people because they see you as an incre- have had an incredibly successful career and much in the way that you were like, oh, it'd be really cool to be Elvis, you yeah. know? Yeah. Look how that poor guy died. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like On the toilet. Of course. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so no one is um, – no one – most people – no one's really got it super figured out, you know? Yeah. Like even the even the – the yogis and the monks still have human moments that they Absolutely. struggle with. And Absolutely. so I think it's just good to realize that nothing is... is. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Idealized. When you... um uh, by the way, uh, I, I did want to ask you, like, when you go through the junkets and you get, like, your top three questions, what do people ask you about the most? Is it, is it about Stranger Things now? Is it about Full Metal Jacket? Is it about Vision Quest? Like, what are the, what, what are the ones that you get? Yeah, today it's always Stranger Things. You know, Stranger Things has given me a, a, a whole other generation. It's given me Generation Z. Yeah, you know, uh, which is wonderful. You know, to uh, one of the things that you have to remain is relevant and a part of the conversation. So, uh, Stranger Things has has provided that the, the the Duffer Brothers are are wonderfully talented young men, and uh, you know they they really did talk me into doing the show because I didn't <laughs> I wasn't keen on it. I don't, don't like playing uh, hateful people, and and uh, you know, but they they really knew my career. They 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 knew moments like subtle moments, and and when. They were trying to talk me into doing the show. I was in England. I was working on a project there. And uh, we had a long, long conversation on the phone. And the detail, the details that they knew of my career, it, it was just flattering. I mean, they knew things that I didn't think anybody knew. And, and so, uh, much like yourself. <laughs> uh, so uh, so I, I, it made it difficult to say no, and I'm glad I said yes. Yeah, yeah of course, because I know that uh, that's one of those magical things that I think having a long career gives you the gift of – I'm sure you've worked on stuff before where you're like, oh, my God, this thing's going to be huge. And then maybe it wasn't the huge yeah. thing that I was going to be. And this – it sort of felt like Netflix didn't even know what to do with it. And they're like, yeah, fuck it. Just put it out. We'll see what happens. And then it becomes the biggest thing yeah. on Netflix. Yeah. This was one of those examples of we're all given the same equipment. <laughs> we, we all, you know, the same cameras, lenses and everything. And it seemed like, you know, that the kids were charming and that they, 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 were, they were proficient at directing and, and the stories were interesting. But it didn't feel like something that would become a global phenomenon. But again, this is how the business has changed. There was never... You know, Full Metal Jacket might be the most successful film of my career. Um, 
but it's probably played in 80 territories around the world. Mm-hmm. Netflix is in 162 territories around the world. The only place I think it's not is China and North Korea. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it's a global phenomenon. That that kind of thing didn't didn't exist before uh, before the internet. You know, the the possibility of of becoming a, a YouTube star that 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 you know plays all over the world. You know, that's so interesting because I think we still think of the idea. It's probably just because of the way our brains classify information, but we sometimes still think of like movies. They're so big, yeah. but then when you start digging into the data, you're like, yeah, way more people know about Stranger Things than yeah. know about a yeah. lot of movies yeah. that you know come out in the theaters. Way more people play Call of Duty. Yeah, I mean, of course. Call, they, they, that's what you want to get. Is you, <laughs> you wanna, if you want to be rich and famous, make a make a successful uh, shooter game. Was it? Uh, this is probably the wrong way to phrase this, but was Full Metal Jacket fun? I don't know if fun's the right word. I mean, it's it's not fun, but I mean, like as an no. actor, fun. No, no, <laughs> not at all. No. <laughs> I'm no. Sorry to laugh. <laughs> no. I just like no. the Frank. No. No, yeah. not at all. No, yeah. it was brutal. I kept a diary while I was making the film. The, the, I only made 20,000 of the books because it was a metal covered book and it has a serial number on the back of the book. If you have one, flip the book over and look, there's a serial number because I wanted to make it something collectible, like a piece of art. That is wonderful. Yeah, and thank you. And uh, then the book wasn't available anymore. So uh, I, I met a young guy who, who worked for Steve Jobs. He worked at Apple and he created the theater spaces in the, in the, in the stores because Steve Jobs knew that it was important not just to have a computer that could do something, but to teach people what you could do on a Mac. Yeah. You know, that was very important to him. So he put these theaters in, in the stores where people could come in and be part of these these conversations, you know, a 50-seat theater, yeah. a 75-seat theater. And Adam Rakoff was the person who was responsible in New York City. He opened the Soho store. He opened the meatpacking store and the Fifth Avenue store. Um, and he really loved my book. And he said, hey, what if we could turn your book into an app and i said what do you mean he goes well i'd have you record the book and then we'll do some original music and sound effects and we'll take all the photographs that you took on the set i used a medium format roloflex camera to uh take pictures on the set he said we'll blow those uh, you know we'll uh, uh digitize those those high oh, you know wow. high res di- di- high res uh, scans of the photographs and we'll make this incredible interactive book. And I said, that sounds amazing. How do you do that? And he goes, that's the hard part. Now I have to figure out how to do it. And he did it. And it's uh, if you have an iPad app, it's it's not an expensive app. I think it's $3. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's a real, I, you know, I, the reason I mention it is not because I want to try to sell one. It's because that if you're curious about Stanley Kubrick or Full Metal Jacket and, and would like a peek behind the curtain, uh, it, it's it's... You know, I talked to Malcolm McDowell and Ryan, Ryan, oh, wow, uh, uh, Barry Lyndon. I can't think of his name. Ryan O'Neill. Gee, sorry, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> Ryan, uh, that the, they wished that they had kept a diary on the set so that they could have done something similar. Uh, you know, taken the the stories that they had because uh, Barry Lyndon, I think, was was similar to Full Metal Jacket. It just went on and on. I was in England for two years on Full Metal Jacket. Oh my God. Uh, uh, the Malcolm McDowell movie, uh, Clockwork Orange, uh, 
uh, was, I think, one of the fastest films he ever shot. I think it was done in less than uh, eight or nine weeks. I'm, I don't, but don't quote me. Sure, sure. I think it was pretty fast. But it's an amazing app. And uh, quite simply, if you ask me what was Kubrick like, uh, I'd say that he was like the Wizard of Oz. You know, the, 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 the what he, the image that he manipulated and created and projected to the world was like the all-powerful Oz, that big, you know, screaming, booming voice, you know, in the projection. And you see uh, the lion and the tin man and this scarecrow and Judy Garland looking at this powerful, powerful person and they're terrified, shaking in their boots. And the little dog, Toto, goes and pulls the curtain back. <laughs> and you, you're, what, what's revealed is that it's a man, you know, projecting himself onto a screen and manipulating the sound of his voice. And, 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 uh, he, but he, above all else, was just a kid from, from the Bronx who wanted to make movies. Uh, was ex- obviously extraordinarily talented, extraordinarily talented, and a, a, you know, arguably a genius. One of the most amazing filmmakers to ever get behind a motion picture camera. Uh, but what the book also reveals is that he's probably one of the best producers that's ever made movies before, and uh, that oftentimes on the film there were more, no more than ten people on set that, oh, were, wow. that were working. It, it was like working on the most incredible independent film ever. That's incredible. I didn't know that. I'm glad that that app exists, yeah. and I'm glad that you kept that diary. I, I encourage you to, to, to check I it will. out. I will. Yeah. You can also get the audiobook if you don't have an iPad. What's it called, by the way? A Full Metal Jacket Diary. Did you did you make the book right away, or did you wait till after Kubrick died? To... Uh, well, I always wanted to do something with the photographs. Uh, the photographs are beautiful, and uh, you know Kubrick has uh, many of the photographs. I, I made prints and gave to him, so now they're in the estate. The, the, I think there's three or four of them in the, the I, I know it's, I don't think I know there are three there may be four of the images in the uh, traveling Kubrick exib- mm-hmm. exhibition um, from the film uh, Christopher Nolan has a the, the the beautiful shot of Stanley Kubrick's director's chair that I took oh wow uh, uh, yeah there's, there's only uh, a, I've only made a couple prints of that you know big big prints and um you know, I was doing Dark Knight Rises, and, and so I told uh, Nolan about it. He he said he would love one, so I made one and gave him. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. That's really nice. It's also, I mean, listen, to him, that must be like, you know, like you could have just given him a, a 10 bags of, of diamonds, you yeah, know, like yeah, that. Yeah. But also, um, I I wonder how <sighs> the idea of genius and the idea of how someone can go so far off into their own, like, I think we need to be tethered. You know, when people sort of go off untethered, Hmm. they can kind of spin out of control because I feel like we as humans, we need structure and we need other people. Hmm. And if someone is considered a genius, then no one wants to go near them and everyone always Hmm. wants to just let them do their own thing and keep Hmm. them happy. But I don't know if that ever leads to a great place, you know? Hmm. I mean, is he someone who, I don't know that much about the last few years of his personal life, I doesn't seem like maybe he died a super happy guy, but I don't know. Maybe he did. I don't know. I mean, uh, I was witness to his dismissiveness, you know, that, that when I'd be with him and we'd be talking about something and somebody would come in and he'd get angry and dismiss them. And like, you know, do you see who I'm talking to? Do you, you know, this is important. Why are you interrupting me? 
And uh, we had remained friends after the making of Full Metal Jacket. We spoke kind of biweekly, you know, and, and he was somebody when you got on the phone, it was going to be a, a couple hours. It was going to be a session talking about everything from baseball to, you know, other movies or some film that he'd seen. Um, he was the person who introduced me to Darren Aronofsky, that mm-hmm. he, he, he thought that Darren was a really talented filmmaker. I don't know if he ever contacted Darren to tell him. He was very personable and would write letters to people, you know. So these extraordinary, you know, you get a letter from Stanley Kubrick, and it, it's quite something, you know, oh, wow. so, to be a young filmmaker. So, if, if Darren, if you're listening, if, if you never knew that, he, he was a fan of your work. Uh, he'd seen pie, uh, the p, the not the not a pie like right. that you eat, but the yeah. the numerical symbol. Um, uh, but we yeah we had these conversations, and then when he was getting ready to start doing Eyes Wide Shut with Nicole Kidman um, and Tom Cruise, uh, I called him and I said, "Hey Stanley," because I'd sent him something. I'd sent him the, this this piece of equipment for for a motion picture camera. And uh, he said, hey, Matthew, uh, what do you want? Hmm. And, and I said, I'm sorry, Stanley, there, there's someone at the door. Let me, let me call you back. And I hung up, and that was the last time I spoke to him. Because you just sensed that he was being dismissive, and you well, just didn't... Well, I, I knew that when he started a, a project like Eyes Wide Shut, that, that he had this unbelievable focus to the things that he was de- devoted to. And at that moment, and maybe for the next until that film was completed that I would be that person who interrupted he and I when we were talking. And I didn't, I didn't want to be uh, – first of all, it's hurtful. Sure. And, but second of all, I didn't want to be a distraction because I, right. knew, I knew how much he loved his work, and, and I, I didn't want to be something that got in the way of that. Well, maybe – I mean, hopefully if there's a way – that you're able to find peace with the fact that it wasn't personal, that no. it was certainly just a function of his yeah, yeah. personality. No, no, I know that. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. obviously he meant you meant something to him. It still hurt. Of course it does. <laughs> of course it. Of course it yeah. does. Yeah. Of course it does. But it. But I. But maybe it doesn't diminish all the other experiences. Yeah. Yeah. You know that you had. Like some no. people just can't. De. Uh, detach when you know and that was probably just part of whatever was going on in his head but i want to sort of wrap this up and talk about miss virginia because that is coming out on the 18th of october i think right um and uh uzo aduba is in it and she's great yeah such a wonderful human being i i had her on a show i was doing once and she just was so kind and generous and and I and her story is so inspiring because before Orange came along, she was like, "Fuck all this! I don't want to do this anymore." And it's that classic story of when performers let go. Yeah. Then it's almost like the universe goes, "Now you're ready." Yeah. And that's what happened for her, and I'm so happy for her success. Yeah, I I think that the Oscar race begins on October 18th for Best Actress. You know, I think that her performance is extraordinary. Uh, you know, the film isn't. Uh, like at all Norma Ray that Sally Field won the Academy Award for, but it is reminiscent of the story of a, of a, of, I mean, Norma Ray was fighting for unions, and uh, uh, in, in this case, uh, Uzo Aduba is fighting for her, the 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 education of her child, the the the, the opportunity of, of of a better life for her child or for her son, and and that's a universal story that we all want to to improve upon the lives of our children to to provide them with opportunities that we may have not had, 
and uh, in in this case, it's education. And her son is going to uh, a very rough public school, and she sees a private school and says, you know, I wish that, that was someplace that you could go to. And she goes in and tries to get in, and of course, it's expensive to go to a private school. But she discovers that the the public education is is uh, uh, they're spending fourteen thousand dollars a year on each student in Washington Washington D.C. for the children to go to school, and it's the same price as what it would be to go to the private school. So why shouldn't you be able to get a voucher from the from the state uh, to be able to send your son to the school that you choose to send them to? If if you want to go to a private school, why shouldn't I be able to get a voucher? Uh, to take that tax money and put it into a private school, and, and that's the and that's the story of that. Yeah. Is it is it based on a real person or is it? A, oh yeah, yeah. Her name is uh, Virginia Walden Ford, and she is a she is a force of nature, as is Uzo. Um, the, these are these are people that if you you know they're tornadoes. If you tried to throw a lasso around it, they'd drag you across the country. Sure, they're powerful people. But but uh, in the case of Miss Virginia Walden Ford. Uh, it, it, there's an African proverb that says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Oh, and wow. so she knew that in order to be able to accomplish the things that she needed to, to do for her son, she was going to need uh, a group of people. And so she activated the community. She collected signatures. And, uh, and, and now, uh, over, you know, since this story began uh, over a decade ago, uh, she's approved upon the lives of thousands of, of uh, impoverished uh, inner-city youth. And they have a 90% uh, graduation rate at, for the, of the students, uh, which is extraordinary, the 90%. And uh, so many of those children have gone on to get uh, college educations. And, uh, you know, the, the, the one girl that we I was introduced to is an oncologist uh, who's, who's uh, got such a bright future as an oncologist and might be, you know, the person who, who cracks, the, cracks the mystery of, of cancer. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, so it is, you know, much in the same way that Stella Adler said to you, you have a responsibility to share with people and share yeah. with your community. And in this case, it's, you know, the same kind of like we have to, we have to fight for people because what are we doing if we're not – uplifting our communities yeah. and instead of just and especially now when it's so easy to just live in your own private bubble yeah. <laughs> I mean, you could just literally just stare at your phone all day long yeah never do or think about anything or anyone else yeah. and understanding that it is important to detach and reconnect with people and try to uplift and try to do you yeah. know try to do good for for people yeah I've seen this movie twice now. I saw it in Philadelphia at a screening and, and in New York City at the Parsons School of Design. And, you know, there are some movies that a communal experience is necessary in order to feel the full impact of the story. And I really encourage your listeners to go and see this movie in, in a movie theater. And, and hopefully it's a packed house um, because it's, it, it is a movie that's empowering and, and it's about community. And uh, the experience of watching the film with a with a large audience on a big screen was very different than what what it would be if you you know watching it on an iPad or a, a large screen television in your living room. That it's it's uh, it's it's a movie that deserves to be seen in theaters. And you know what, what you're talking about about the impact of of telling stories. I've, I've had, because of my work, I've had the pleasure of traveling all over the world. And I was in Turkey in a in a place called. Uh, 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 it'll come to me in a second. But they, while I was at that film festival, they uh, 
asked me if I'd like to go see some of the antiquities in Turkey. And I said, sure, I'd love to see something. So they gave me a list of options. And there was this one place called Termosis, Antalya, Antalya, Turkey. Uh, so they said, would you like to go to Termosis? And I said, yeah, that sounds cool. And it was this, the legend had it that this was a town that Alexander the Great had not captured. You know, he hadn't conquered this town. And so he couldn't, because it was too high and too well fortified on the top of a mountain. So he said, uh, destroy their economy, burn their olive trees. And it was a city that was made wealthy by olives and the pressing of the olives. So... Uh, this city fell into ruin, and, and later on, it was a Greek city, uh, and then later on, the Romans came, and it became a Roman, uh, Roman city, uh, and then it fell into ruin. Um, you had to climb up like a donkey trail in order to get to this city, and as opposed to Italy, where everything's kind of behind a fence, in Turkey, they don't have the money to keep you from touching ant antiquity. And you walk through this town and you could feel where the, the souk was, the, 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 the market where people sold vegetables mm -hmm. and fish. And, and, uh, and you're wandering through this town and you could see there was a place where they, the, guy, the guy that was with me said this was a gymnasium. And he said, if you look here, you can see the footprint of the tepidarium, the caldedarium, and the frigidarium. So there was cold water, mm -hmm. hot water, and tepid you know, oh, for, wow. for bathing. And, and then you come around the corner and there carved into the mountain was this amphitheater looking out at the sea. And at that moment that I was there, the sun was about to set on the, on the, on the sea and it was a beautiful, gentle breeze blowing in from the, from the sea. And, uh, and I knew to the Greeks and the Romans uh, that, that those elements were very important, water, air, and fire. So the sun, the air, and the sea. And, and this, you know, where you were sitting, sitting, you would have looked at that and looked down at the performers standing on the stage. And all for the purpose of hearing people sing songs and tell stories. That, that that's how important it is that what we do that is to our culture. You know, we, we generate, we create something that doesn't have any tangible value, but that is invaluable to our culture. That the, the stories that we tell help to improve people's lives and, and to see each other in different ways, even through comedy. Sure. You know, through the, 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 the comedy is extraordinary, you know, in, in what, it, what it allows us to be able to, to peek at the underbelly of things that we're frightened to talk about, mm -hmm. you know, and laugh at it and, and, and see how silly it is and kind of take the, take the power away from it oftentimes. Uh, but but that, so we're we're a part of this art form that that that, that tells stories that affects people's lives and and it's it's a it's a incredibly honorable profession and I mean I know there oftentimes people dismiss actors and say what does that person know he's just an actor <laughs> right. what is that guy he's just a comedian <laughs> but but what we do we spend our lives ex studying and, and looking at things and 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 uh, we create something that's invaluable to our culture because it it makes us better people. It, it, it shapes our our uh, our societies and and well yeah and it was supposed to, I mean it's only in the last I don't know sixty years maybe that uh, entertainment has become uh, that you can watch entertainment in an isolated way I mean you know with the advent of television you could just watch it at home but before that 
you know, especially comedy or going to movies or going to the theater, I think part of it was a communal experience. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you go see comedy or you go see a play or something or when you go see Miss Virginia, hopefully, in a movie theater, you are having an experience with a flash community that yeah. forms a, an organism. Yeah. Yeah. And on the way out, you know, you're having conversations, you're exchanging ideas, you're all shared an experience, which... Mm. You know, like, is why we started forming societies was yeah. so that we could, you know, it's like that we need each other to form these yeah. societies. Yeah. We have to talk to each other. We have to commune. Yeah. And these are these are sort of wells where we can show up and kind of do that. And so, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, on the one hand, you know, is is being a comedian or an actor is it the same as being a you know a nuclear physicist or someone who like you know digs sewage to bring or to digs water to bring water to no it may not be those things but it is also it does have a communal function and so i do think it i do think it is important mm. and uh and it's been such an absolute pleasure to talk to you and do you have any kind of Final, just some fun yoga wisdom, just something, <laughs> something to send people away with. Someone who's, you know, certainly someone who you said, listen, I've, I've struggled with depression. Obviously, sugar, cutting out sugar has helped. Yeah. But what are some mantras, or what are some things that you go back to? Some simple things that you think that have helped guide you through things that you think you might be able to pass on to other people in a Stella Adler way. Um, tell the truth. I mean, it might be just your truth, but but uh, you know, I I, th- I think you know we always hear that as as, as children that it, it's much easier to tell the truth because you don't you know have to remember your lies, um, but but it, it, it's it's so freeing you know to, to tell the truth that because and and learn to say no you know that that uh, you know that there'll be things that that you'll get pressure especially young people you know you get pressured into doing things that you don't necessarily want to do and saying no sometimes is the most terrifying thing in the world because you think that you'll fall out of the, of grace with your friends or that mm-hmm. you'll be rejected um it's okay it's a, you know and it, it it's it, it it may hurt for a little while to be rejected but but ultimately learning to say no uh, is is one of those things that leads you to a greater understanding of free will, you know, and and uh, I, I don't think anything is predestined, you know, that that we have the 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 ability in our lives to change the course of of, of human history. That if we, uh, you know, I, one of my favorite parables from the Bible uh, is the, those among you that are without sin cast the first stone, because that parable, if practiced, has the ability to change the course of life on the planet. And uh, just uh, so the the concept of forgiveness is, uh, which that parable is about, is uh, unbelievable, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to forgive. And then what are you joyful about? Like what makes you like just to sort of wrap this up on a on a happy note. On, on a note that where you like, what are you what are you joyful about? It could ju- it could be like. There's a flower that I like, or I this experience, or I like the taste of this, or I just like quiet. Like, what are you? What are you joyful? What makes you joyful? It, what gives me great joy is is being with my wife now. I mean, I the the you know it's been almost forty years, and uh, you go through you go through difficulties, you go through dark times and and hard times, and but what what we realized was that those dark times, those difficult times in a relationship are uh, personal problems. They have nothing to do with the marriage. 
the marriage isn't the problem. That the, the, when she was going through uh, the change of life with menopause, or, and I was going through a career change, you know, they, all of a sudden they start sending me these douchebag, you know, horrible, <laughs> mean, mean guy roles. And I thought, what happened? How did I go from being a leading man to playing the, the guy that the leading man is going to, you know, shoot and kill yeah. or, or try to get rid of, uh, uh, put in jail? Uh, like what did? I, and so I was going through that, and like. Why is this happening to me? And and she was going through that, and we were becoming both of us empty nesters. Our children were were leaving home. A lot of change. Graduate, so it was a lot of change. And and uh, I said something to my wife, and she came to me a couple of days later, and she said, "Does that mean that you're asking for a divorce?" And I was like, "Oh God, no! Why do you say that? No, there's nothing wrong with our marriage." And this was a very uh, a, a seminal, important thing to to understand is that there was the the marriage was not the problem. Marriage it was something was a, a rock to cling to in the storm. You know, that was something that was solid and immovable. But the personal problems that you have when you're going through a relationship might just be yours, you know? And so (laughs) you have to fix it. And she can't help you fix it. And I couldn't help her fix her menopause or or the fact that she was becoming an empty nester. That's something that you have to fix on your own. And and having that discussion and realizing that, it made our marriage... uh, it took it like it was like finding a fifth gear in a four speed car, you know, that, that it, it, it gave us a, a, a different, yeah, a different understanding to uh, human relationships and, and support. And, uh, you know, so what I really enjoy now is just because uh, she's not just uh, my best friend, you know, she's she's my confidant. She's my savior. You know, she's. She's uh, literally saved me. She's brought me back from death. And so I I love that. You know, as someone who's been married for three years now, (laughs) that is a great, beautiful chunk of advice is not blaming the relationships. Like, hey, what do I need to work on? What can I work on to make this better? Because this is worth, you know, making. uh, And so that is a gorgeous piece of advice. And uh, and you are just such a pleasure to talk to. Thank you. I I hope you've had a nice time. I hope I didn't talk too much. No. This is perfect. Yeah. This is perfect. Yeah, I put your like, that my podcast could be something that people could take instead of uh, melatonin not or something. Not at all. No, not at all. Well, these are all about an hour long. Oh, like wow. this is yeah. So it's like this was about an hour. This is exactly you know. But it flew. I just realized we've been almost an hour, a little over an hour, and I it flew. Feels like it's been ten minutes for me. So. Um, but thanks again, and people should see Miss Virginia. Try to see it in the theaters if you can, October 18th. You know, if you can't for some reason, it'll be on VOD, uh, on various platforms. And, uh, man, come back anytime. Seriously. Thank you. Thank you. I know you're a New Yorker, but, you know, anytime you want to come yeah. back. If you're a voting member of the Academy, I encourage you to see it, to vote for <laughs> Uzo for Best Actress, because she's amazing. It's a beautiful performance. Excellent. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Yeah. The end. ID 10 scanning complete. Enjoy your burrito. It's all a lighthearted nightmare on our podcast, Morbid. We're your hosts. I'm Alina Urquhart. And I'm Ash Kelly. And our show is part true crime, part spooky, and part comedy. The stories we cover are well-researched. He claimed and confessed to officially killing up to 28 people. With a touch of humor. I'd just like to go ahead and say that if there's no band called Malevolent Deity, that is pretty great. A dash of sarcasm and just garnished a bit with a little bit of cursing. This motherfucker 
lied. Like a liar. Like a liar. And if you're a weirdo like us and love to cozy up to a creepy tale of the paranormal, or you love to hop in the Wayback Machine and dissect the details of some of history's most notorious crimes, you should tune in to our podcast, Morbid. Follow Morbid on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to episodes early and ad-free by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. 